Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. I'm Jacqueline Coley. I'm an editor at Rotten Tomatoes, where I write about independent film and awards. I'm Mark Ellis. I'm a comedian, Rotten Tomatoes correspondent, and I have never been asked to sing in a choir, probably for good reason. Oh, Mark, I feel like you're musical. Can you not? I mean, I think there's some karaoke nights I may have been privy to where some Van Halen was sung, so... Yeah, Panama's my go-to, yeah. Okay, okay. I was just going to say, because I'm like, I think I've seen you rock a mic once or twice, so it's fitting that today we're going to be talking about a song where people are getting getting their singing on. That's right, kids. We're going to be breaking down Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit with Whoopi Goldberg. And let's just say, I'm not going to say that this movie inspired this podcast, but it definitely has a very close attachment to why we do this podcast, because it, there's a great story behind it, which we're, we're definitely going to get into with our guests, because she was kind of intricately involved in giving me a job. So I have to like preemptively thank her a little bit. But yeah, we're talking about Sister Act. This is a a movie that has an abysmal 17% tomato meter score that I personally think belies its brilliance. But there's a lot of reasons why we think maybe Rotten Tomatoes got it wrong at the time. And we're going to break down why it wasn't appreciated for the feel good um, certified fresh masterpiece that I think it is. So um, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, Mark, I know... You're going to be joining us with this, but where do you lie? Um, I'm hoping maybe you're on the 61% audience score when it comes to Sister Act. Yeah, I'm definitely closer to the audience score with this movie. And when you look at it on the surface, you say, oh, well, it's a comedy sequel. So it really doesn't have great eyes of being as good or certainly not better than the original. But this is what we're looking at with this movie. You have Dolores, everybody's favorite, Whoopi Goldberg from the first movie. She's now in Vegas and she's not a show girl but in her words a headliner and she gets recruited back by some of our fan favorite nuns from the first movie into the habit because her old school in san francisco it's a catholic school and it's kind of run down and they might lose funding they might lose everything unless she can come in and inspire the kids how does she do that the power of song and we all learn a little something about ourselves and about music on the way. And Jack, what I think that is what drew me to this is we're going to get into in the show later is just the musical numbers. It's not just we need to get to the next one, but wow, are they soaring and powerful. I mean, the talent in this movie, there are future Fugees and Black Eyed Peas <laughs> and a whole bunch of other bands that I can't think of. One dude was in something called City High. I, I can't talk about it, but, you know, there's a lot of musical talent going on in this song, even though Whoopi Goldberg was dubbed. And so I'm wondering why the critics did not agree with me. Um, I don't remember it having a bad tomato meter score. I do remember taping it off of Disney Channel and playing it on repeat for an entire summer. So maybe Tim Ryan, our review creation manager, who always takes us back to the time of the tomato meter of the film that we are discussing, is going to let us know what the critics were thinking at the time. So Tim, take it away. Thanks, Jacqueline. When Sister Act came out in 1992, it did pretty well with the critics. It was 74% on the tomato meter, and it did really well at the box office. So naturally, they made a sequel. 
When Sister Act 2 was released on December 10th, 1993, critics had spent an entire year watching mediocre sequels. For every Adams Family Values or Wayne's World 2, there was a Weekend at Bernie's 2, or a Robocop 3, or a Jason Goes to Hell The Final Friday, or Beethoven's Second, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, or Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice, or Look Who's Talking Now, or Best of the Best 2, or Another Stakeout. So when Sister Act did well, and then a sequel came out the following year, critics weren't necessarily super charitable to films that they saw as quickie cash-in sequels especially sequels for movies that had come out the year before. So let's take a look at some of the reviews. In a rotten review, Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times wrote, This is another one of those dreary retreads about a bunch of kids with no faith in themselves and about how an inspiring teacher coaches them into the state finals where they upset the snobs from the rich school. On the other hand, in a fresh review, Jay Boyer of the Orlando Sentinel wrote, Considering how terribly resistible, to me at least, last year's Sister Act was, the sequel seems like a movie miracle. So overall, critics felt like, despite a strong cast and some pretty good musical numbers, Sister Act 2 fell far short of the original in terms of its energy and originality. So to recap, Sister Act 2 is 17% with 36 reviews, and it has a 61% audience score. But just a reminder, the tomato meter tells you one thing, but I really encourage everybody to read the individual reviews, not just for Sister Act 2, but, you know, any movie that you're interested in. And that's your traffic and weather, 94HJY, home of rock and roll. <laughs> it's all yours, Jacqueline. I love listening to Tim. He is professorial without being dictatorial. I used too many fancy words on that one. He's <laughs> very a, funny. It's a lot he's of very, syllables, Jack. <laughs> he's very funny and informative. How about that? Can we make it a little bit more simple? I really appreciate it, though, because he always brings me back to that time. I feel like I'm going back to when this movie came out and I can understand a little bit of what the critics were saying about Whoopi and a little thing what they were saying about sequels. But um, I think our guest is going to be able to maybe give us a little bit more details. I'm very excited to have this person because as I teased at the top, she is without her knowledge intricately involved in Rotten Tomatoes is wrong because she kind of in a way inspired the podcast. So I'm really happy to welcome her here today. Of course, I'm talking about my Kiko James. She is the director of programs for women in film and she co-manages the Black Blacklist Women in Film Writers Lab. And let's just go ahead and talk about it. Um, uh, Franklin Leonard, who runs the Blacklist, founded the Blacklist, um, tweeted out about the, at that time, score of Sister Act, I think being like 7 or 8%. And it went a little viral on film Twitter. And I had people like DMing me being like, what did you do? And I'm like, <laughs> it's like, okay, I, I feel like I'm having flashbacks to like, you know, people confronting me about Suicide Squad scores. And we were already talking about the podcast. And that's when we were sort of in our Slack saying, this is what the podcast really is. So, my Kiko, maybe you could break down how you got Franklin on this whole topic of Sister Act 2. Sure, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so, as you mentioned, I co-manage the Blacklist WIF Writing, writing Labs with um, my partner in crime, Megan Halpern, who's uh, one of their VPs there. And the icebreaker for this year's Feature Lab, where we have six, um, this year's seven screenwriters come break in new projects, is we want to know, you know, what is your affinity to bad film as you enter this uh, illustrious lab program? Um, and so, you know, Franklin actually asked, like, it has to be an actual bad movie. You have to look up its RT score, its Rotten Tomatoes score. So we, <laughs> it's not just like, oh, that's kind of bad, but it sounds like a 70%. No, no, no. He's like, it has to be a bad movie. Um, and as I was, we were going around the Zoom talking about our favorite film that it has a low score. I was thinking my standard answer to the question, what is your favorite film generally, um, you know, generally gets a chuckle when I'm in these film rooms, people who are cinephiles and, and have gone to film school, because it's the, my standard answer is Sister Act 2. Um, but I never looked up its Rotten Tomatoes score. So everyone else is going around. Um, and I <laughs> was just, you know, listening also, but on my computer searching for this score. And I saw it had a 7% and I fell out of my chair. I, I was I was literally floored. I did not understand. So by the time they got to me, I was in this seething rage <laughs> about the injustice that was Sister Act 2's 7% score. And not, to no one's surprise, when I mentioned it, 
and Franklin in particular, everyone had the same reaction. If you had seen the film, it was impossible for it to be rated a 7%. There is no way you can not enjoy the viewing of Sister Act 2. And so, you know, Franklin has a slightly larger Twitter following than I do. <laughs> and in his quest for Sister Act 2 justice, uh, tweeted about it. Um, and I think, you know, it's an interesting uh, trajectory of our relationship as having founded these labs together, partially you know, and I, more seriously for these reasons of who was telling these stories and who was judging these stories. We founded these labs together because there are not enough women screenwriters and television writers. Um, there are not, a, not enough writers of color. And, you know, arguably there are not enough critics of color. So even though it's funny um, to commiserate in the injustice that was Sister Act 2's score, it, it, you know, really spoke to a larger reason of why we do the work we do. Yeah, I mean, it is really interesting. I mean, the blacklist, um, for folks that don't know, is this um, place where folks who want to have a screenplay um, sort of seen by a wider audience, they can put it on the blacklist and have it evaluated. They have tons of writers programs like the one women in film that you manage. And it's really just an entree program for undiscovered writers to get their movies in front of the eyes of producers. And it's a really great, um, I think, community in that respect um, for folks to really, you know, be, I I guess, the kind of writers that they want to be. And if they want to write the next Sister Act, they can. And we should allow them to do so because it is a movie that needs to be in the world. Look, I was baffled that this movie, which is essentially put on a show to save the school, was given more vitriol than Halle Berry's Catwoman. Like, come on. Like, I, I still, that has a higher score. By the way, um, this is going to be a running theme for this episode is I'm going to talk about all the movies that have a higher score than Sister Act 2 that undeservedly don't do so. But um, Oh, goodness, we're going to be here all day. Yeah, yeah, we are. It, especially <laughs> Sister Act. Like, I'm, I'm impressed that it got up to 17% this quickly. Just because... Yeah. I've been doing a lot of research uh, for Halloween related movies for the Rotten Tomatoes versus show that I host. And like I'm looking through all the leprechauns and there's a bunch of leprechauns that are way above 17 percent. There's a bunch of Chucky movies that are way above 17 percent. And it's like, how can you put this on? I love how my Kiko phrase is like, how can you put this movie on and just not feel joy? You may not think it's a great movie. I don't think it's a great movie. I don't think it's like a plus cinema, but it's just such a feel good movie. And I think part of the reason in addition to the fact that the audience reviewing the movie may not be the audience that the movie was intended for, or even that that audience was prejudging what this movie was based on any number of factors, including the fact that it's a comedy sequel, and those are famously not reviewed well by critics. There's very few comedy sequels. There's like... I think Wayne's World 2 is funnier than the first one. I think Naked Gun 2 and a half is funnier than the first one. And that might be the list. I, I don't know that there's another comedy sequel that has been funnier than the first one. It's definitely not The Hangover Part 2. We can all have mentioned that one. Oh, um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I actually love uh, one of the ones that they talk about. Uh, Gremlins, The New Batch. I love way more than the original Gremlins because there's a whole issue of white suburban paranoia in the original gremlins that doesn't necessarily get keyed on (laughs) if you're not paying attention to the idyllic town that's invaded by other people yeah like look at that one a second time but (laughs) well here's the thing about gremlins 2 also is that i I think it i think sister act 2 and gremlins 2 are, are sort of in the same boat in a very weird way in that it's a total left turn from what the first movie was yes and, yeah. and Sister Act 2 is not trying to rekindle what we saw originally. It's the same character. And that's why maybe we love it so much is because we know this character from the first one. We've had a fun adventure already. And so that also that, that, that is built in. But usually where a sequel will just try to use that as the entire excuse for going to see the movie, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, had a new thing, new songs, new versions of them, new ways to perform them on stage that we had not seen in the first one. So it wasn't just recycled garbage that I think a lot of critics might assume it was because it had a two in the title. My Kiko, when do you've seen you? Obviously, I'm sure you saw Sister Act one before you saw Sister Act two. So talk us about, first of all, you're seeing the first and the second one. And like when you knew that this was like the movie for you that you were going to spit out as your favorite movie. 
So I, I will say Sister Act One was also a formative film in my life. Um, the year it came out, I was actually living in Hoi with my mom for a few months. And I it was, uh, you know, a temporary situation. So I didn't have any friends. And I forced her to bring me to the movie theater, I think, seven or eight times to watch Sister Act One in theaters. So, you know, that, too, is emblazoned in my mind as one of the best films of all time. Um, but then, like, skip forward a year and a half, year and change, to Sister Act Two, and I, I couldn't contain myself. I was nine. I had so much excitement. I had no idea what it was about either. It didn't really matter. It was the second part of this incredible series. <laughs> there was nothing to be more excited about. Um, and, you know, I will be honest, I don't remember the exact first time I saw it. I know it was in theaters because I think I proceeded to watch it, you know, again, yeah, maybe 20 to 50 more times in the next three months. Um, and I, having rewatched it recently, sitting there watching the opening sequence as you drive through the Vegas Strip, I had the same rush of feeling that I had when I was nine of being so excited, no matter what was coming. So I admit there was a bias because the first movie was so important to me. But then as I watched through frame by frame, got increasingly more excited about how wonderful <laughs> the story and characters and music um, all were additive. Um, you know, by the end of the film, I'm sorry, like even in this moment, in this terrible COVID historical um, uprisings, things happening in our world we just can't control. I watched Sister Act 2 and was reminded that there are things that bring me joy. Um, and I remember the same feeling being nine uh, to now. I'm in my mid-30s. Um, it really is such a lovely reminder of things that can give you delight, uh, even in the midst of all of the turmoil that we find ourselves in. Aww. I love that joy. We do need that joy. I don't know Sister Act. Maybe I've seen it too many times. And although it is a favorite movie of mine, I do agree with you where when you talk to film school people, they definitely look at you side eye. In fact, because of that, I actually have two movies that I say. If it's a film school, bro, I say it's The Apartment, which is one of my all time favorite movies. <laughs> definitely there. But if you want to know the truth, the movie that I'm thinking about when I'm like, I need this moment is Heather's, which definitely talks to my darkness, but that's my all-time favorite movie, but I have a hard time saying that to people that went to NYU film school. Like, it's just not, like, they don't want to hear that. Okay, you know? I went to NYU film school. I stand by Sister Act too. Yes! <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, we're, then you we're know. Then you bridges. know. Then, you, then you are the person I should have met instead of these film bros who are making me feel less than. So I and appreciate And I would you. like to point out, I am not one of those film bros because I will come at you with, here's how I would soften the blow of saying Sister Act 2 Back in the Habit is a great movie. Is that I'll say that two of my favorite movies for all time are Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze, and Young Guns 2. So after that, you're sort of prepared for anything. And both those movies are rotten too, so we should probably have future conversations about that, Miss Coley. Especially Young Guns 2. That soundtrack though. Woo! Thank you. Uh, Thank let's you. Let's finish the game, kids. Anyway, speaking of finishing the game, uh, Mark, <laughs> was the first time you saw Sister Act for the show? I don't know. Were you watching Sister Act 2 before? Both of them? Like, no, I actually saw both movies in the theater. I had uh, w one of my good friends, still to this day, uh, Jess Johnson. We uh, he we only He was only in our town for like... His family, my family, are both military uh, families. And so he was, I think, maybe in Williamsburg with me for three years, like sixth, seventh, eighth grade around then. But we loved going to the movies and seeing like, like we'd see, you know, stuff like Encino Man. We snuck into Lethal Weapon 3, Jurassic Park, stuff like that. And we saw the first Sister Act and, and it was great. And then we went to go see Sister Act 2 back in the habit, like, opening weekend and I just I, I don't remember it the way that I remember the first sister act probably because I've seen the first sister act so many times more subsequently but what drew me to both of the movies was the fact that at that time we were both going to Catholic school so seeing someone like Whoopi Goldberg have fun with the conventions of the church and Catholicism and nuns and not being insulting to them but still getting laughs with them, sometimes at their expense, but it's not laughing at you so much as we're all laughing at this together. That is what 
I, I really left the theater with a sense of empowerment for right from the get go in the first sister act when it's the flashback to her as a little girl and she's trying to list off the apostles and she says, John, Paul, George and Ringo. And I'm just like, I like this person. I am rooting for this. Whatever adventures we go on, I am in her corner. And I think that that has carried me through both of those movies. So I can look back with some fond memories about just how innocent it was just laughing at the establishment, laughing at the authority figures that were both in my world and in Dolores's world. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad that you saw both of those at the theater. That's awesome. Um, I am pretty sure I did not see either of them at the theaters, not because I wouldn't have and that I didn't want to, but it was just, it wasn't part of what I was doing at that time. Because again, it wasn't, I wasn't that young, but I was definitely young enough to not be able to say to my mom every time I wanted to go see a movie, she was going to take me. And I don't think she was down with Sister Act. However, though, I did have the Disney Channel and cable because I'm an only child and that was the babysitter. And so I watched Sister Act on the Disney Channel all the time. And then when I was a choir kid, um, we watched it both in choir, like camp and Days when the choir teacher, now I realize, probably had a hangover because that's what teachers do when they play videos, um, would play Sister Act 2 as a way to sort of like entertain us when they didn't want to teach. Um, and then also as a church kid, Vacation Bible School, we would definitely watch Sister Act. And in youth choir, our youth choir conductor spent the majority of her time trying to prevent us all from thinking that we were Lauren Hill. Because she was like, you guys aren't. Why would she limit your dreams like that? Because she was trying to conduct a choir of 60 people and everyone cannot be Lauren Hill or Celine Dion or anybody like that because then it doesn't, it's not in key. Like some people need to just hold the harmonies and none of us wanted to do that. So wait, were you in choir? Uh, Maikiko, were you, were you ever in choir too? And and was it for both y'all, was it because of this movie that you joined choir or did this movie just accentuate your desire to continue in choir? Yeah, I was definitely a choir kid. I went to private school for elementary school and just when this film came out and we sang uh, every year. Um, It was a small enough school where basically all kids had to do everything. (laughs) So I was in choir and soccer and basketball and all these other things that I wasn't terribly good at, but, you know, required to do. Um, And I think that watching Subtract 2 was very affirming in that, like, oh, but this too can be a path forward for you. Um, And, you know, the other really important part of Subtract 2 was seeing people that looked like me. So, you know, I have a lot of personal biases around why I love this film. I was born and raised in San Francisco. Um, a lot of the scenes were shot in uh, a community center called Cameron House in San Francisco Chinatown. It's actually a very famous film location. It also shot um, scenes from Princess Diaries and very famous commercials with Steph Curry um, because it has that gorgeous basketball court that you have to go up the steps for and you have that incredible skyline of the city. Um, and that community center is a place where I went to a lot in my youth, um, though granted it was after uh, Sister Act 2 had come out, so I remember being starstruck by the location <laughs> when I got mm-hmm. there. Um, and and then I also ended up going to Catholic high school. I'm not sure if it was because of Strike 2, but now I'm thinking it might have been. Um, it's a re- revelation I had two weeks ago rewatching the film. Um, but I think, you know, the choir part, I ended up pursuing the arts. As I mentioned, I went to school specifically for screenwriting. Again, really all because there are only a few films that had my childhood represented, people that look like me represented, a multiracial student body. You know, I still don't know, can't name that many films that look like how Sister Act 2 looks. So in addition to like the pursuit of the arts and and Rita's mom telling her she can't do that um, very concretely, uh, you know, to, you know, having camaraderie with your classmates and, and making art together. And there are many things that were impactful about Sister Act 2 that I yeah probably wasn't analyzing as deeply at the time. But I look at my life now, I'm like, wow, that movie maybe really made me who I am. It's influential. And I'm, by the way, um, I think it is the biggest comedy of all comedies that Bill Duke directed Cheryl Lee Ralph, who literally played Diana Ross in the original production of Dreamgirls. 
talking about don't follow your dreams, sweetie. I died. I was like, this is so meta. Like, why don't you just have Jennifer Holiday say, don't really give it that extra belt on your song, uh, Jennifer Hudson. And again, saying that to Lauren Hill, who is about to become an international superstar musician. I just want to like replay that scene and then like cut to like what they did after that being like, "Mm, don't know if that was exactly what you meant. Um, (laughs) But I mean, look, you touch on the thing that I think is uh, true with a lot of folks, which is that this movie is beloved, holds a place in people's hearts, not because of or in spite of the score, but just because it spoke to an authenticity, to an experience that a lot of people had. And maybe those weren't the people who were evaluating the movie for its quality from a critical standpoint, but they were absolutely the people who were watching it from an enjoyment standpoint. And I think, yeah, I mean, I saw elements of my choir kid childhood in it, and I definitely felt it was real. And when you have a cast like what they had, you're right. It, it's it is remarkable because how many like you know only white '90s teen coming of age comedy slash dramas did we have? I mean, they got a little better in the late '90s of adding the token black character, literally that they parodied in not another teen movie. They literally called him token. Like, so they did that, but they never had a movie like sister act where they really were like, we're going to show what an inner city high school would actually look like both every aspect of it, them cutting up in high school, not wanting to listen to their teachers. All of that um, was definitely present. And I think, you know, that's why people like me. Yeah. I absolutely adore this movie. I love the the colorfulness of it, the fun of it. And and it's really, I think, really kind of incredible. Mark, what about you? What do you particularly liked about Sister Act? Like, what was the part of it that really sort of resonated with you? I mean, it, it's hard to go against it, the the climax when we're we're in by this time we're in we're in Los Angeles and and we hear joyful, joyful, and we have a hip hop angle on it. And it's just this it's just such this nice culmination of the story where, I mean, you know where the movie's going. And like, I'm that idiot that when I'm watching any sort of murder mystery or who done, I have no idea who the, I still don't know who it was in Knives Out. Like, like, like I'm just not good at predicting stuff. Okay. But with this movie, you see where it's going. You just hope that instead of wondering, oh no, are we going to make it? You just say, is it going to be worth it? Is the payoff going to be worth it? And it's just such a soaring musical number to close the movie out that you leave happy. And so my my question is, does that mean that it's a good movie critically? Because maybe it doesn't check all the boxes of cinema, but it makes you happy. And, and isn't that why we're going to see Sister Act 2 back in the habit? Are, are we going there because we want to see the, the, the use of, of light and shadow and how they frame this shot and how they, they, they use the revolutionary new Panaglide to fight? No, we're going there because we want to feel something. And th- that's what impressed me about this movie. And upon rewatching it this week, you still feel that. In, in a much-needed time, you still get that escapism that I think I, I was probably looking for when I saw the movie when I was 12 years old and what I am still looking for as a 40-year-old. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. 
I mean, I agree. Uh, for me personally, I mean, I think in this movie, which is a strict musical, um, which is also a departure from the first one, and I think also threw people kind of off, um, the musical numbers, you're right. There's so many. Joyful, joyful, oh, happy day. Like, any time, if you want to be somebody, if you want to go somewhere, wake up and pay attention, that wasn't necessarily a song that they were planning out, but it was a musical number. But for me, I think the musical number that really solidifies it is the one early when they discover that Lauren's character Rita can sing and they're singing his eyes on the sparrow. Mikey, I'm sure like from credits to credits, you were living for this movie. But is there one particular moment that really kind of stands out for you as to like, if you could pull up a YouTube scene and replay it, what's the one, what's the clip you're going for? I think for me, the scene that lives in my heart is Oh Happy Day. I think there is something about Ryan Toby hitting that note that is all humans wanting to achieve greatness. It just, I don't know how else to describe that. Granted, I don't know anyone else who can hit that note, so it might always be aspirational. Um, but from the beginning to end of that scene, right, where it's shy and quiet and, and are they going to make it? And here's a bunch of, like, skeptical high school fellow classmates who are like, nah, right? They're saying from the beginning, nah, this crier is not happening. Um, and again, they cast it so well. I mean, I was just paying attention to the background actors <laughs> sitting there, like, make sure you look like you hate this. Um, and it was really great because, um, you know, you are that high school student, right? Um, you're apparently the critic summer on tomatoes. Um, and I think that... Uh, shade. I call shade. Good shade. Good shade. And then you get into it and and it's just the, again, raw talent of, of how they put that together, Lauren and Ryan and, and all of the classmates. Um, you can tell that the actors feel it, right? There's just something so lovely about watching that come together. Again, I think Joyful Joyful obviously is this incredible closing number and, and you can't really top it, but you know, Happy Day is the one that sticks with me because you're just waiting for them to break through. Um, and I think it's there's something about, you know, Rita's character coming back to join them. I mean, for me, Lauren Hill always has this, this kind of edge, and, and that was the, our introduction to her. I mean, I have to say, like, her, just her character throughout the film, but being really excited that someone with that edge is willing to, like, be reintegrated back into the class and, and, and soften because she wants to pursue a dream and because she loves her classmates. Again, there's just something really, I mean, I'm reading into all kinds of layers here, but really important about the presentation of that. And, and I have to say also Lauren Hill was a seminal figure in my life. I mean, I think that was the other part of this film. Um, and City High too, granted, they were kind of a one hit wonder, but you know, not understanding that hip hop wasn't what everyone was embracing at the time, but certainly in my childhood, um, that was the kind of music I listened to, to so, so to see it represented with the gospel overlay, uh, I think was just mind blowing, right? It was the beginning of like, here's what's possible in art and here's like the, you know, fusions or, or, or collaborative nature of stuff that you could present in ways that you've never seen before probably really did inspire me to go make movies, right? And to make art. Um, but yeah, I can think about happy day at any point in my life and, and just be a little bit happier because the day is. Yeah. And honestly, as a former choir kid, you can appreciate this too. One thing that you don't notice until you get older and you interact with people who did not have arts in their formative years is you put on a show. And that aspect of we have to come together, we have to practice, not to go compete, where you could literally do the best you can do and then lose, but this idea that the purpose of what you're doing is to entertain other people, that's something that once you have that drug and understand that concept, you want to apply that to every aspect of things that you do, that whole like teamwork making art. And so again, when Tim was talking about it and I was thinking back at the time, I was thinking about Whoopi Goldberg um, because fun fact, um, her brother is was actually friends with my father. So there's like a little Jacqueline Whoopi Goldberg connection there. Um, and fun actually, fact for everyone listening, everyone in Jacqueline's family somehow is related to every celebrity. Like, like no, six degrees no. of Kevin Bacon is fun. You no. can play one degree with any one of Jacqueline's family members <laughs> with any celebrity. You, it, it doesn't matter. It can be a former president. It can be a famous performer. Jacqueline's family knows them. It's this I is literally the one famous person that like. My, well, my dad worked in movies, so I will say he does know one 
one, but this is the only one where like this dude was at my parents' house and he knew my grandmother. But the only reason why I mention it is because there was a big backlash to Whoopi Goldberg becoming as famous and as popular and making as much money as she did at the time. And I do remember my dad even talking about it. Like this movie for a split second made her the highest paid actor in Hollywood, not the highest paid woman, not the highest paid black woman, the highest paid actor in Hollywood because she earned a $7 million paycheck for this that the producers and Bill Duke post, you know, her Oscar and post her success with things like Jumpin' Jack Flash. They were like, she's worth it. Um, she's this talented, this movie made a ton of money the first time around and she didn't get paid the money that we think she should have been. So if we're going to get her back for the sequel and she's the big draw, we're going to pay her the money that she's owed. And yes, there were people that were resentful of that. It was well publicized how much money Whoopi was getting for this. It was well publicized that it was a sequel. And I think there's just a lot of people asking the question as to why. I mean, I don't know, Mikeiko, if you felt that when you... We're watching it later or if you grasped maybe after you looked up the scores like what did you key into when you realized that people didn't love it as much as you did well it's an interesting uh, phenomenon right i think and we've many people have been talking about the advent of you know what is happening around representation in hollywood i mean that's so fascinating that Whoopi was the highest paid actor at that time because has a black woman since ever had that title? Um, has a black woman since hosted the Oscars? I mean, again, I know there are only five people that have who are black um, and she's the only black woman, but you know, she set a precedent that you thought was going to be matched consistently, right? From 1993 onward. And you find us here in 2020 still fighting the same fight. And I think that's a really interesting you know, sometimes sad uh, idea for me working in this industry, you know, like, oh, when I was nine and watching films like this, seeing this type of representation, like that's what I'm going to be doing in the world, right? Um, and to come here to this age where I'm actually d dedicating my life as an advocate to making films look more like this one, um, both in front of and behind the scenes, you know, I realize again how formative an idea Whoopi Goldberg played in my life, real being a powerhouse at that time and for many years subsequently, and even to her career on The View, right, like still very much a, a force in our, um, in the U.S. zeitgeist, but she's still singular. Why is that, right? I think about that a lot. There aren't many people who match up and we have incredible black comedians and actresses that have come since. But really, I, I don't think you can name someone who towered in that way. Um, and, and I find that really quite sad. I, I, mean, I hope that, you know, we're not done with this part of the process and, and casting more people in roles like that. But it's an interesting nature of celebrity now too, right, where I think there's a bit of a um, what's the word, like people not being able to hold that much in the same way, like Whoopi got an EGOT, right? How many people have? It's a very small number. Um, it's just not an opportunity that's afforded to as many folks in the same way. But I hope it's it doesn't stay like that, right? I hope there are still opportunities for especially women of color to explore massive careers through comedy and multi-platform um, performance because it really is the way, you know, young girls like me still like needed the role model, right? Needed the idea that that was something we could pursue. And I think um, Whoopi Goldberg's career really represented something that one wanted to emulate or at least was really kind of continually inspired by. But we have a lot of work to do to make sure that other people have that kind of opportunity. I mean, and then conversely, like, you know, seeing careers like Lauren Hills, which was so important for a short amount of time. And even now looking at the hip hop industry and how many women are there compared to how many men, similar question, right? I was set up to believe because Fuji's kind of came out right along the same time as Sister Act 2. I was like, oh, this is awesome. She's like the star of my favorite movie and my favorite hip hop group. Okay, what? who's next, right? Like, yeah. where? where's the rest of them? Yeah. Um, and, and it's, and even to think about uh, one other point that really stuck with me in rewatching is Amal or Ryan Toby's character talking about appropriation, right? Yeah. And thinking about, you know, why it was important to have black characters in that film talk about, like, uh, granted, I know this movie is going to be about, you know, some hip hop tone, but we have to talk about how it's a, a black art. Um, yes. That we're... I don't see films talking like Disney films talking about that in the same way. Wow. And it's still true, right? Who's getting credit? And especially in this moment, where we're like uplifting black lives and black artists. 
it's just important to have those messages everywhere because we're still fighting for those same opportunities. It, it, it's one of the real like it, it, tragedies of that time is that Whoopi Goldberg, who I do think is a singular talent, and that's just not me, you know, loving her because we have sort of shared roots at the comedy store where she was performing in the belly room. She was doing stand up and she was doing one woman shows up there. And Steven Spielberg saw her. The legend goes one night. And then that's how the color purple started. And then she became this huge star with comedy chops who could hang with anybody doing stand-up, but then could also translate that talent into other avenues and other arts, winning an Oscar, being a huge star from Sister Act. And then it was like she was held up as this unicorn. And it's like, well, no, there's other people that, that are talented that, that aren't getting these same opportunities, that, that don't have the doors open to them to maybe one day earn a $7 million paycheck for a movie. And with Whoopi in particular... I think that now when we look back on Sister Act and Sister Act 2, we say, wait, that was an important movie, not just because it makes us feel good, but culturally what it meant and what should have followed it. And and even if there are things that are following in its footsteps 30 years after the fact, instead of three months after the fact, it's still important to remember those movies that paved the way. And so I would say Sister Act, and for different but some similar reasons, Sister Act 2, Back in the Habit, I, th- I think it's one of those re- things why it's nice to go back and watch it because it does make us happy and we're filled with joy. But it's also like this was an important movie that people should have paid more attention to the cultural resonance that it was showing us at the time. It was it was giving us the playbook, y'all. It, yeah. it, it, it was there. We had, we, we had the plays to run and... We just haven't done it for a while. Yeah, it's interesting too. what I'm glad you brought up the Steven Spielberg because that's actually where I was going. When you when my Kiko, when you're asking, like, why has this happened again? Well, how many young black women under the age of 30 are going to get tapped by a Steven Spielberg type character like, you know, Christopher Nolan casting Denzel Washington's son in Tenet is great and all, but he's pretty established in his career and he comes from a Hollywood royalty family. Um, that That's not a big stretch. I mean, what Steven Spielberg did with Whoopi is what you see people like the director, um, God, what's his name? The director of uh, Silver Linings Playbook, what he did with Jennifer Lawrence, you know, adopting these actors at a young age, making them a part of who they are. It happens with male actors all the time. It happens with young white women. David O. Russell, thank you, Lucy, our producer. Who's I was going to get there. You, you, yes, you, you had a great you. stream of consciousness yes. sentence, and I was like, oh, she's going to get it. She's going to yeah. get it before no, me. No, Two Lucy's points got me. Lucy's got me. But yeah, there's tons of those examples, but you don't see as many examples of a director of that caliber where you know if they turn to an actor and put their little finger on them and say, hey, this is next. People are going to pay attention. And unfortunately, it hasn't really happened for people of cross races as far as doing it that way. Like somebody like a Scorsese doing that to maybe a young Asian actress or a uh, or woman of color, indigenous actress or something like that. Like who is going to be the black J-Law? I mean, Zendaya is making a very good case for it. And I am all the way here for her. I'm ready for Zendaya's Silver Linings playbook role. Euphoria has gotten us halfway there. But that's what needs to change. I think that is what will give us more Whoopi Goldbergs, and that will give us more actors and actresses like her that can then go and have an EGOT, you know, before they're 50. Well, here's something that can illuminate that, too, is that for anybody who thinks, oh, well, now I have to like, you don't have to like Sister Act 2 as much as uh, we're talking about it. Like, I, I think it's a good movie. I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's a good movie. And I think it may be remembered as great because of what it represents. But if you have any sort of pushback as to whether this movie was unfairly maligned by the critical group that was reviewing it at the time, go look at the School of Rock Rotten Tomatoes score. It's 91%, and it's pretty much the same movie. It's different because you're talking about rock and and not church hip-hop, but it's this renegade teacher who's very unconventional and maybe isn't doing things the right way, but is getting it finally getting through to the kids. And there's a huge musical number at the end, and it's like 17% versus 91%. The 17%er came first and had Whoopi in it, and I I just don't... That's what I can't rectify in my head. Yeah, I think, I mean, I try to put myself into the minds of critics because, look, I used to be one. And so I think like them a lot of the time, but not always the time. Um, And sometimes 
if you are in the minority opinion, um, it could be because you are a minority that has an opinion about something that is not necessarily the same as everyone else around you. Meaning if you are the only person who grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, like I did, you understand that the legend of Billie Jean is an authentic masterpiece. Because if you grew up in Corpus, you're like, this is what it's like to live in Corpus. That town is terrible. And you love that because it was so authentic and it spoke to that truth. If you did not grow up there, you're like, why does this like, what do we care about the girl that's cutting her hair? And I think Sister Act is back is like that. If you were a choir kid, if you were a Catholic school kid, um, if you were a black kid in the inner city or a, uh, or a kid that grew up in the inner city or if you went to a private Catholic school, like all of those things help this movie, I think, resonate with you more. And I don't know if every single critic who was watching it um, had those opinions and critics opinions about sequels at that time period, I also think was really different. But I don't know, Mikeiko, if you were looking at that from a critical standpoint, if you could understand maybe why they don't necessarily vibe with it. Well, I would say, I mean, so to the point, the majority of critics, obviously, did not appreciate it from that. But I think that's part of the issue that we've talked about around criticism, especially recently, actually at in the 2018 Crystal Lucy Awards, which is the, um, the former name of the gala that my organization hosts, Brie Larson talked about the lack of representation in, in, in criticism, right? Um, and in 2018, she was highly maligned for even saying that, right? She was like, we need more non-white dude critics and and got the most hate of any, at least Twitter post that we posted about, yeah. uh, WIF. For even mentioning that she just would like to like not be critiqued by another white man. And and I think that's something about criticism that I know Rotten Tomatoes has been thinking about for a moment, but it really just asks the question, right? Who who is determining what is good? What are our standards? Where are these coming from, right? Critics are supposed to have the universal taste factor, right? Like they are the arbiters. They get to decide what is good or bad. But if you are not a young, in my case, Asian American woman in choir, out, dreaming of being someday a performer, like, I'm sorry, this movie is not for you and you're not going to give it that 107% that I give it. Um, and 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 who's to say that you had more, you know, discerning assessment of whether or not it was quote unquote good. And it's not to say, again, as someone who studied film later, I understand what standard criteria around good filmmaking are. But I think we the point that we're in now is like, let's expand the the idea and notion of this. And that's why you have a popular score versus a critic score too, right? Mm-hmm. And even the many conversations around the Oscars and the awards shows generally, like who is deciding what is good and for how long have you been deciding what is good? I mean, it, and again, not to get too deep or philosophical about it, but it's a similar question around using the word matter in a phrase, Black Lives Matter, right? People are deciding what matters and not having the conversation around like, well, who decided that? Who decided what is significant in our culture? Whose lives matter in any given context um, based on the, the current paradigm we live in? And I think it's, it's I, you know, I don't want to make a serious topic unserious. Sister Act 2 is not a serious movie by any stretch, but maybe that's the point, right? Maybe we're like, all serious movies have to have a root in warfare or, you know, drug addiction. And I'm not saying that you don't need films with high stakes and, and important life and death lessons, but you also need the other side of it, right? You need the joy and you need the joy lived by people that don't look like you. And if you don't understand that joy, that's fine, but it doesn't mean you need to malign it and make it seem like it's irrelevant or insignificant um, and and I and I think that there's moving forward who I don't know the future of film criticism maybe Jacqueline you know it better because you were one but it's the question of how do we keep this going right how do we keep encouraging people to decide what they want to consume as as media watchers without being dictated to from the powers that be because I think ultimately it matters right the critics also make a lot of financial decisions for the industry if it's a bad movie we're not going to make that mistake again or it doesn't sell overseas we're not going to do that we're not going to invest and that's where you see the opportunities get cut out over and over again because someone somewhere is saying you know that didn't work and I'm like did it not work or are you just saying it didn't work and that's a conversation we have to be having over and over again because who is dictating those rules Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, because you're right. Um, 
who's calling the balls and strikes, if you will, it is very important when we're talking about what gets made. I will say, I think the audience has as much of a vote as the critics do. However, what's really interesting with films like Sister Act, where they had a second life on cable and in secondary media, and that's where most people found it. And this is something that's been talked about with several of the articles that have been written about Sister Act in a retrospective form. The Undefeated has a very great article where they talk about its cult status is things like the critical reception of Sister Act depressed its box office potential, depressed this idea that fans could find it. And this is before the internet where people could literally get behind something, become something that people were like, oh, let me go see this. And you have a less of a chance for something to really bubble up and become an actual hit. And again, like, I I, I still don't understand it. When I was reading a lot of the reviews... Um, retread, you know, was something that I heard, um, you know, this is a cash grab is something that I heard. Um, but there was very little where it was like, oh, I don't like this particular character and what they did, or like, it was predictable. I'm like, okay, I get what you guys are saying, but like, what is it about this particular movie that brings out this level of vitriol? And really for them, it was just, they felt that it was unoriginal but I think the part that they were missing is the originality was not what they were doing. It was who was doing it. Because how it many was, movies yeah, yeah, had and, that and, kind of cast? And it, and it wasn't. I mean, it's a retread in the sense that she's back in a habit, which is what the movie's telling you you're walking into. But it's, it is a very different story. And you should have been prepared for the music. Sometimes people get thrown off. Like, I've been thrown off walking into a movie where I did not know it was an actual musical the entire time. And you're like, oh, God, they're going to be doing this the whole time. But you should sort of know that because the title of the movie, Sister Act 2, and the first one was really popular. And while it may not be considered a musical, it had a lot of music in it. So you can expect there's going to be more singing involved. So buckle up. And it's like, I don't know if it was expectations were subverted or people did look at that paycheck that Whoopi got and just assume it was a cash grab. But for whatever reason, I'm glad that this movie can find a second, a third and a fourth life. I mean, even the, the music itself, the soundtrack went on to, to become a gold record with mm-hmm. sales, I think, in, in the mid 90s. And it, whether you're talking about Sister Act 2, you're talking about Office Space, you're talking about any of these movies that didn't have a great reception critically or box office wise at the movie theaters, but they can find a second life. And so I think that that is the job of, of critics and fans alike. And, and when I look at the tomato meter, I respect it as something that is going to intrigue me. It's not just a barometer of whether I'm going to go see this movie or not go see this movie, but I want to know, okay, that's the score. And then I want to get below skin deep and I want to see what made that score become that and with sister act two i think it's a fascinating exploration and and a worthy topic of conversation and a a pretty good podcast subject yeah i mean look um rotten tomatoes to you know not back my employer too much and pretend like i am all you know bleeding rt which let's face it i am but in truth objectively the company has done a lot over the past three years and even, you know, more so even before that to just sort of examine what we could do um, to really say if we're part of this space and we want to say that we are like the Weather Channel and we're going to give an accurate representation of the critical opinion and the audience opinion of a particular piece of content, whether that be a television show or a film, you cannot have that be an accurate, clear, focused picture if you only see what this demographic of people think about it. If you're only asking, you know, white male critics that are 35 to 55, that is going to be an accurate opinion for them, but it's not going to be an accurate opinion of the entire critical landscape because there are so many different, um, I would say, quality reviewers out there that come from various different backgrounds and more importantly, use various different mediums like podcasts uh, to arbitrate the quality of films. So oh, hey, that's I, I really, what we're on right now. I know we're, we're actually doing I, I, we're doing yeah. a show. I had no idea we were plugged in and and, and this was li- really this is going to yes. air producer Lucy. Oh, boy, I mean, this is exciting. I mean, I get it. But hey, look, this is what's great about Rotten Tomatoes is, and I saw this on the Twitter thread, everybody comes in there with their defenses. And the best part of the defenses of Sister Act was how passionate people got. I mean, everything from BTS, the K-pop band, to Lizzo, to parodies. This is a movie that even if 
it was judged to be a zero on the tomato meter. The audience has definitely spoken that they love this. It is a part of the pop culture lexicon. They are referential towards it. They revere it. And so, yeah, I think even even though it does have a score that I'm not particularly happy about, it's actually kind of great now because that's actually put people in this like sort of like we're going to war mentality about this movie. Like we're no, we will defend this into our dying day. And I think that that actually kind of adds to its charm. It's sort of like the kids going up against the big hulking massive handle choir. And so let this loud voice tell us that this film is only 7% or 17%. We will come back colorful and joyful with hip hop and say that it is better. I like that. Preach. Preach. <laughs> movie. I know. I'm really, I'm really going to church with this one, and I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm being a little bit too like, like peaching on my mountaintop. But I mean, I don't know. I think this movie what, went to church your, too, because yeah, because I mean, yeah. th- this movie, not just in the film itself, but a lot of churches and a lot of choir groups took cues from Sister Act. I mean, you hear the renditions of the songs that we debuted in this movie to this day. It's it's all over the place. And you can't say that about a lot of other movies with a tomato meter score that way. I, I don't think Leprechaun changed the way Irish folks feel about leprechauns. I, I don't think Sharknado changed the way sharks feel about tornadoes. But this movie certainly changed how you can engage young people in a way that's going to educate them about religion, express their talent through song. It, it did a lot for, for the youth of America. You know I'm not a fan of kids. It's Jacqueline, but it did a lot for the youth. <laughs> it did do a lot for the youth. Let's get out of here and let folks who haven't maybe seen Sister Act 2, which again, why are you listening to this podcast before you've seen the movie? But if you haven't. Because they uh, love us. I know. It's because they love us. They will now get a chance uh, to maybe head over to Fandango now or Voodoo to rent or buy a copy of Sister Act 2 because it is available on both platforms but um akiko let folks know where they can find you and what you have going on besides being awesome in women in film and the blacklist yeah um please visit our work at wif.org we have programs ongoing um to support careers of women and gender non-conforming folks that you can be a part of um and we welcome everyone whether whatever gender you are um in all backgrounds religions creeds choir levels um to hang out at wif um and and stay in it right stay making the stories that you love um and and however we can support you we will be there even if only on zoom for now Mark, I will go ahead and assume that you are not doing any comedy coming up. Is, or do you have things coming up that folks should be aware of? I'm just going to go ahead and ask you real quick. All the world's a stage, Jacqueline. I'm a, merely a player. So I'm entertaining folks when I walk the dog, when I go get my morning coffee at Coffee Bean. I'm kidding. I get iced tea. And no, no upcoming show dates live just yet, unfortunately. So I guess in the meantime, just uh, follow my Kiko's lead and go back to WIF.org. But if you want to follow me on the social medias, you can go to Mark Ellis Live, at Mark Ellis Live. And this movie, if you're like me and you grew up with one definition of what choir is, this movie will blow your mind because you can actually enjoy watching this choir. Back when I was in school, you go watch the choir just to see which kid is going to faint. We used to take bets on it. Who's going to pass out first on stage? And I won one time. Very funny. The kid's okay. Don't worry. He made it. He's all right. (laughs) Yes, yes, of course. And of course, you can find out everything that we're doing at Rotten Tomatoes. And that is on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, You can find me on all social media platforms at that Jacqueline or head over to RottenTomatoes.com to read what I'm writing about this crazy awards season. And we have our next movie for next week. But before we tease our next movie for next week, Mikeiko, since you read a lot of scripts and watch a lot of movies, is there one particularly that you maybe want our audience to check out if you want to give us a quick recommendation before we get out of here? The one that's on my mind is just because it's the one that most recently gave me a similar amount of joy. It's not exactly in the same vein or genre, but I think it also has a very important place in our cultural history. And that's The Farewell by Lulu Wong. I I can't praise it enough. Um, I was really bummed because I was supposed to do um, an outdoor screening with her, a Q&A with her, um, right as COVID hit. And so we're going to revisit that. It's coming back when we get to meet again in person. Um, But really, again, a movie that has 
a level, a joy factor in every scene for me. It's not quite the same elation as Sister Act 2, but such a delight to watch. And I'm, I'm all here for movies that bring us delight in this moment. Uh, I love that. Um, well, if you have a movie, like, I don't know, say, The Legend of Billie Jean, that you want to recommend us to cover, or, you know, Mark, what did you say earlier? Gremlins yeah. 2. We, we have I a bunch of movies that we feel can like cover. we confirmed it. Young Guns 2 on Young the Guns docket, two. officially. Yep. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Um, we're going to spend a, a significant amount of that podcast just talking about Bon Jovi. However, um, let us know, though, at rtiswrong at rottentomatoes.com. Send us an email. Let us know how you think we're doing. Let us know which films maybe you think we should uh, cover next. Maybe you have a hot take and you want to, like, pitch yourself for the podcast. Lucy will read them, so send it along. And uh, next week, we're going to break down a movie that... Whew, this movie, I'm not going to lie to you guys. This next episode is going to be probably a little spicy. We have a very exciting director guest that's going to be joining us. We're going to be talking about Danny Boyle and Leonardo DiCaprio's The Beach. Whew, it's going to be a lot, guys. Mark's but it's not excited. Danny. It's not Danny and Leo joining us. No, we don't. They're no, not coming over to my place to no, socially distance and podcast. No, okay. but we will have Jim Cummings, who's Woo! a very fun director, and he will be joining us next week for this podcast episode on this movie and uh, who y'all i don't want to tease too much but this one's gonna get spicy that's all i have to say <laughs> i'm excited it's, about it just got yeah. a link to uh jim's got a new horror movie and uh, i just got a link to it so i'm gonna watch that in the meantime then i'm gonna catch up on the beach and uh i'm excited to talk about it. i just want to go like i live 10 miles from a beach but i want to go to this beach as I remember yes. from the movie. So I'll refresh my memory. Not as much singing in that one as we got in Sister Act 2 back in the habit. So a little bit of a tone shift for me, but that's what we do on Rotten Tomatoes is Wrong. Yes. So everyone, please tune in and we'll see y'all next time. Mm-hmm.